Hello and welcome to the PharmaForum Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. My guest today is Dr. Artem Trotsyuk from Long VC, and um, we're going to be having sort of a wide-ranging conversation about uh, the biotech, bioengineering startup world and sort of the intersection between that and, and AI. Um, but, but just to start, uh, Artem, t- tell me a little bit about yourself and, and how you got involved in this world. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, thank you so much for having me and uh, excited to talk a little bit more about uh, the work that I'm working on and kind of how it extends from uh, investments to biotech to startups to AI. And I feel like those are all buzzwords that I'm throwing at you right now. But uh, the reality is that there is huge intersection between all of those. I got into this space uh, in uh, while I was in grad school, actually. So I did I was a pre-med undergrad. I used to Davis and then I did my grad school work at uh, Stanford where I did uh, smart bandages for wound care. And a part of that work involved uh, using sensor data to uh, do modeling of the wound, like pretty much your, your, your skin's healing and you can use some sensor data like temperature sensors, for example, to, uh, to understand what's going on with the healing over time. And then you can use AI or analytics to predict if it's getting worse or better and then adjust treatment accordingly. So that was my PhD work. And in doing that work, you kind of got exposed or I got exposed to this, the bubble of the Bay Area and uh, moving from Sacramento to the Bay Area. It is a bubble in, in a capacity of like there's a startup domain, there's a heavy tech presence, there's a growing biotech presence, and then there's something called venture. And all those were like new to me when I started grad school because I honestly didn't know any of uh, anything about it and kind of just going through the rigmarole of exploring and um, uh, doing internships and fellowships. I got involved with a gentleman by the name of Ron John Nag, who is the founding partner at uh, the R42 Group in Palo Alto. He was an angel investor before he institutionalized his work. So I got involved in venture with him. From there, did investment work on his team and then uh, operations work with a few startups. It's like one of the things that as a as a PhD, what are you good at? You're good at doing tasks that you can extrapolate of that have value from your grad school days. In my case, that was grant writing. And my PI was very eager to make sure that everyone in our lab wrote grants and contributed to the grants. And so in the biotech startup space, it's exactly the same stuff. But instead of writing grants for the lab, you're writing grants for a startup and uh, uh, trying to get some non-dilutive capital. So got involved on the operations side with a few startups in that capacity. And then with uh, Longevity, uh, started working with them in February of this year. Uh, the funds focused on uh, Longevity Biotech uh, w- with an emphasis on improving health span and lifespan through various modalities platform technologies, digital health, therapeutics, and every other intervention you can kind of think of that can help someone live better, live longer. And uh, there I am one of the partners at the fund working on kind of making sure that we have exciting deals that are coming through the pipeline that the, the team's looking at. So tell me a little bit about kind of your investment philosophy there, especially around sort of, you know, there's biotech, and people are starting to talk about sort of tech bio. It's it's all about these two worlds of sort of that you you mentioned in in San Francisco especially, but you know we find them all over of of tech and of kind of life sciences. So how do you see that space evolving, and and what are you thinking about when you make the investment decisions? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, generally speaking, back in the day, I guess biology was its own thing, computer science was its own thing. Even in my undergrad days, uh, I was a study biology for for my undergrad degree, and computer science was in this siloed, separate building. No one really did cross collaborative work there, and it was not as common to have computer scientists or biologists perform computer science data analytics in any capacity. It was more pure biology. Whereas then I went in my grad school program, computer science was integrated across many disciplines. My first class that I had in my bioengineering PhD uh, class list was quantitative physiology. And I was like, oh, how hard can this be, right? You're, um, you're studying the human body. You're doing some quantitative analyses. I've done that in my undergrad. It should be a, it should be a breeze. And then our first homework assignment was to code up uh, a the circulatory system of the human body in Panda or in Python. And half the class looks at the instructor and like, what is this? Well, what, what's a Python? Why do we have to do Python-related work? And it turns out, I mean, that was, that was my kind of aha moment that I should probably learn computer science skills because clearly there's something that I'm missing. And... In doing that, you really do get to see how computer science can be applied to many disciplines. So in the space of biotech, for example, a lot of companies that are starting in the space that are converging between biology and technology are playing with a lot of data. And to play with a lot of data, you need compute and you need the ability to process that data. And so, and then do predictive analyses of any uh, any type on that data, which includes being able to predict drug targets, being able to identify the better protein that can be engineered for therapeutics or being able to predict what someone should eat based on their eating patterns or their glucose swings or uh, or anything like that. So what I've seen with a lot of companies now that are being able to successfully get funding, they have a data set that's a little bit proprietary, so it's not just public domain. They have an algorithm that is able to mine that data set and get novel novel insights out of that data set. And then using those insights, they can create drug formulations or they can create some sort of tangible product. The difference between companies that are doing AI for drug discovery, and if we just stick in that domain, if we do AI for drug discovery companies, the companies that are doing just AI for drug discovery and are struggling is because You need a product at the end of the day. At the end of the day, every company who is doing drug discovery hopefully wants to have a drug. And if you're just a drug discovery engine that's just popping out a bunch of targets, but those targets stop at the, we have a list of targets and that's it, you're not going to go really far. All companies that are operating in the biotech space, they can have the best data set, they can have the best algorithm, they can have the best way to mine that algorithm and find the best combinations and that's all novel and new but they'll get all to the point of needing to identify internally the next step and the next step is that same pipeline you go into phase one phase two phase three ind enabling studies in order to test your drug and preclinical models safety efficacy and then you do in people then you go down the fda rigmarole and so forth what is interesting is Oftentimes, AI for drug discovery companies don't understand that the cost associated with doing that latter stage is a lot more than what you would need in order to even do your computation in the beginning. And so 
there's a little bit more of kind of like this. Oh, yeah, I can solve this with computers. You could probably solve certain things with computers, but then you hit a wall where you're like, well, the rules are these and I have to follow the rules for everything else. And oh, my God, this costs 30 plus million dollars. Now what? And then that's at the point where you're kind of like that differentiates a company that's able to spin out products and go into something versus just being a platform that's scanning things or trying to identify targets. Don't get me wrong. Doing laundry list of target identifications are great, but your value inflection comes from you being able to identify targets and move those targets into the clinic. It feels like early on, these companies were announcing deals with pharma companies that were just like, we're just going to sell you targets. We're going to, we're going to generate a bunch of targets for you. You're going to pay us based on whether they work out or not. Um, has, has it been a shift to sort of realize that like that is not enough? That's going to be table stakes. Companies have to actually be to some extent drug companies or? Two. Yes. True answer is yes. Because there's so many AI for drug discovery companies that the higher order question is when another one comes in the pipeline and there's many that come through the investment pipeline. How are you different than everyone else who's doing the same exact thing or has a slight modification to what you're developing? And a lot of these drug companies, big pharma companies, have AI teams inside. Uh, GSK, for example, they have a whole AI division. And so it wouldn't be unlikely that they are also trying to do internal development on their own data that they have internally and then trying to get targets to spin out that they might find interesting in, in alignment with whatever the case that the pharma execs want to uh, push through. What the deals, the, the company deals that are working are oftentimes where a startup might be developing a product and then they get to the point where the, the pharma company is interested, but internally they don't have the bandwidth or don't want to invest a ton of resources to do that development risk. So might as well have a startup work on it. And then once it gets to the point that it's been de-risked, then in that case, they can look at an acquisition or looking at partnerships, looking at business development deals. In a way, it's, it's a very nice way for a pharma group to not spend a ton of money and watch what's going on, maybe with a smaller check, if they're really interested in a startup, with a smaller check or a smaller partnership of some sorts where there's some exclusivity or some uh, licensing agreement, and then seeing how it plays out. And if it plays out, well, we'll put in our money then. We don't have to just, and then in that case, then it's like, all right, this worked great. We'll, we'll, we'll snatch you up. But till then, it's kind of like, well, all right, if this doesn't work, then we didn't have to spend all this money internally in order to bring cash and identify this was not the direction we were supposed to go in internally. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have not actually seen an AI discovered drug come to market yet, right? As far as I know, yes, you're correct. Uh, There are a few that are pretty close. And Silico Medicine has a few that they've developed with their AI engine that is in uh, clinical trials. And so soon, soon to be, yet not fully there. There have been AI assisted ones, but with repurposed formulations that have come through. But from beginning to end, not to my knowledge. Right, which is more a product of the slowness of the drug development process than anything wrong with the targets that AI is, is turning out, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, the, the process could take between five to 10 years, depending on what target you're going, how much clinical data you need, 
and the cost associated with that as well. So it's just the the higher order question is about or the higher order comment about clinical trials is they are expensive and they just take time. And so, yes, probably we will see some more AI discovered drugs that will hit the market probably in the next decade or so, as I anticipate at least at least one is going to get announced for sure. And so it goes close. And so it got announced recently, I believe I saw somewhere on LinkedIn where they're in uh, a later stage in a later phase clinical trial with one of their uh, drugs. So. so taking this back to the original question, uh, what is it that you're looking for with these companies? Is it is it just this sort of awareness and acknowledgement of the of what's required and, and you know, of, of willing to sort of take those extra steps and, and be mature? The, that, yes. Uh, but also, so if a, a company that comes through the pipeline, the ones that are differentiated that have not only traction with my fund, but also with other funds, they've de-risked their technology by having some sort of defensibility of their IP, a defensible data moat of some sort that's more proprietary than anything that's just a public repository. But the public repository inherently can get it cut off and then your whole data mining process goes away as well. Uh, so IP, some sort of data mode, and a lot of times you can't fully have in the public domain what your algorithm is. You can't prote- patent protect an algorithm, and so it could be a trade secret of some sort. Some thinking through the later stages of the cost associated with how much you'll need to take your targets to market, multiple targets, not just one target, because what if that one target does not work out, then what? You've put in all this money to a target that fails, which is very high chance for that, given that not every drug that goes into the phases of clinical trials makes it through the market. And then some traction or some understanding and movement in the BD domain, the business development domain, given that any big organization like a pharma group takes a lot long time to decide if they want to partner with you while a startup does not have a long runway of cash usually it doing discussions earlier with the understanding that certain milestones would need to be met or hitting those milestones as a process of doing a business development deal is usually a green flag or a green signal that there is some interest in a larger group who wants to start with them earlier to then potentially have some sort of exit for those for that group so Outside of the realm of of these kind of AI originated companies, are there other biotech or or um, areas that are interesting to you? Especially some of these kind of emerging areas around cell gene, gene therapy and stuff. I think it's a I think it's a very interesting space. Uh, uh, there, I went to a talk uh, not too long ago where a professor was talking about how. Right now, the space of gene therapy is specifically for treatment of diseases. And you have a problem if it's a single point mutation or some sort of one or two or three genes that need to be addressed in order to have a treatment. Uh, That can be a way that can lead to a treatment modality that will go through the clinical trial phase. And we've we've seen a few that have gone through different phases and have been approved by the FDA for a, CRISP, uh, a gene therapy for, for a certain rare disease indication, for example. What's interesting in her talk was she said right now, because 
gene therapy is for treatment of diseases. But she did say things like, it's been identified that in your DNA, for, for folks who can operate on four hours of sleep, uh, and they're just fine as the rest of us who might need eight hours of sleep, it turns out it's a single point mutation in their DNA that allows them to do that. And so she's like, yeah, you can get a therapy right now to alter your DNA to only need four hours of sleep and be functional just like everyone else at the eight hour mark. But it's going to be out of pocket and it's not going to be approved by the FDA because the process of having alterations for enhancement versus alterations for disease treatment are two different buckets in the domain of the FDA. And there's ethical considerations for that and the costs associated with that. And how do you go about doing clinical trials for safety and efficacy and so forth? So, yeah. So in that case, I mean, the higher the question is, okay, one, would I do that if I had the option? And then two, I guess, is the domain moving in that spit in that direction? If more and more of these types of quote unquote options become available, will there be a more people who want to do that? And if the answer is yes, well, then what does that look like from a regulatory investment perspective? Because say, for example, it's not allowed in the United States, but you go to the different country where you can get that therapy and it's just readily available. You know, there's stem cell clinics, for example, in different parts of the world that exist for treatments and regeneration of uh, osteoarthritis or anything, any kind of therapy that hasn't been fully approved in the United States. So the question would be then, then what? Then what? how does the gene editing space play out? And so to the, in the startup ecosystem, it's, it's interesting to see how different kind of areas are evolving in better delivery vehicles for genes and better, better domain targeting uh, to have less off-target effects for these gene therapies. And kind of using a lot of them are using big data as a means to mine locations, mine and understand how can we reduce the off-target and have higher efficacy of whatever we're developing. Another area that's super interesting is the brain and mainly in the space of just understanding it more and understanding how the brain functions and looking at treatments for rare conditions like certain brain cancers that are simply currently not treatable aside from just doing massive chemo and hoping that for the best. And so really targeted uh, cancer therapies. And if we're thinking sci-fi related things, more in the domain of brain enhancement. So cyborg level stuff where I've seen Neuralink, for example, uh, that's just an example of a company that's looking at uh, doing a therapeutic intervention for folks who have paralysis or have uh, epilepsy, for example, or a certain condition. But I've seen in the space, in that brain machine interface space, uh, some pretty cool work out of UCSF at Stanford where a patient who was normally fully auditory, fully functional, had a stroke and then lost all that ability. And then they put a electrode on the brain and uh, were able to capture electrical signals from the brain and translate those signals into words. And so the lady was able to look at a screen. She was able to think her, her words. And those words mm-hmm. were relayed through an AI avatar into physical sound. And so the possibility of doing things like that, where you can allow for someone to have 
quality of life that they did not think would ever come back is just really cool. I, I mean, the simplest way of this is you talking, you need bioengineers to develop sensors, to develop these electrodes, you need computational biologists to take these ECGs or those, uh, these brain waves and then translate those into this wave equals this word or these combinations of waves equals this syllable or whatever the case may be. And then translating that into text and being able to talk, it, that's pretty cool in my personal opinion. Yeah. And, and to your earlier point, if we were able to perfect that, why would we stop at using it for you know people with paralysis and when it could be sort of like just the, the next computer interface, right? That's sort of what Neuralink has in mind. And that's the, that's the, that's the boundary, right. Of thinking about what are those, the boundary for humanity in terms of what's an acceptable norm versus not right. Right now. I mean, we all, a lot of us have smartwatches in some capacity and those uh, allow for us to have insight into an improvement of how do we get better sleep? How do we have, how do we address our heart rate? How do we have less heart rate variability? And so what does that look like in the next 50 years, taking a step further? And does that include integrated sensors on the body for improvement or enhancement? I don't know, but it's an interesting space to see what founders are coming up with in the space of just being creative and thinking about solutions. Absolutely. And, and it really makes you think about sort of like what possibilities exist when you combine that computational approach with the, with the bioengineering approach beyond sort of where it is now, there's a whole kind of, you know, I, I'm used to dividing things into therapeutics or digital health or digital therapeutics. And, and really, it feels like those lines are becoming blurrier as we go. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is, what, how would you define a therapeutics versus digital health now? I'm just, I'm curious to understand how you define both of those. Well, I guess like digital health, digital therapeutics, well, the longer conversation, <laughs> um, it used to be that the idea of like a standalone digital therapeutic was like, this is an app that helps you the way that a drug would help you, but it's an app, you know? So a good example is the, the one for ADHD. The name is escaping me. It's here in Cambridge. It's like, I, I think like any app, right? I don't Endeavor. Know. Endeavor RX is the, is the app and, and the company. I remember them. I remember seeing them uh, back in the day. So. But then there's also like a whole lot of, um, you know, like companion apps and, and adherence tools that, that are sort of using personal digital technology to improve the efficacy of drugs by improving their adherence. And that's sort of that's another that's a category definitely of digital health and and some people consider them to be digital therapeutics um but then you know because we're increasingly just in a world where everything is digital you know there's also just telehealth right like you're you're on your phone you're getting treated for something but you're just having a a video call with your therapist right so that's why i say like kind of it's not it's not really cut and dried anymore there's very much different um, cross diffusion, I guess, per se, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even in the pharma domain, uh, having an app to be able to understand how you feel and then adjust, adjust the dosing of a drug that you're getting in a therapy in order to be able to then have better therapeutic adherence is very like 
very interesting how those are all fused. I view it all as honestly, everything is a tool in some capacity or another. And the application of the tools, as the tools get better, the application of those tools becomes more wider and more applicable in different domains. And so mm-hmm. uh, a, a sensor or a smartwatch maybe was only good for measuring one thing back in the day. And so at a limited narrow band of application, and now because it can pick up so much more data, now you have all this data. What do you do with this data? Uh, different wearables and just different monitoring devices, even with like brain machine interfaces we talked about earlier. How much of that can be translated into uh, your having your doctor know about what's going on with you in real time? Or what about the concept of a smart toilet? What if your toilet was able to capture certain metabolites and give you recommendations or suggestions on your health? Uh, there's definitely the, the flip side risk of having ambient intelligence always on where you could have detection concerns for folks who might be. I don't know, on a watch list doing and they're not supposed to take drugs, for example, and Mm. the toilet would detect an abnormality and would alert someone. And so the question would be, what is the the balance between privacy of information, privacy of the individual and making sure that data is not hacked or captured, but also uh, uh, having it be useful for that person uh, as well. So it's an interesting space where in parallel, as technology is being developed and as people are thinking of creative new solutions, you have all these other secondary effects of this technology that are coming up that you have to think through in order to do development in a in a cognizant manner that is aligned with those. And oftentimes, as an engineer, we're like, we are prone to building quickly and building fast and then thinking about it later. But then later could be more detrimental than thinking about it earlier and thinking about the consequences earlier to make sure we're integrating and building solutions that are cognizant of any concerns ahead of time. Yeah, I think we've learned over the past 10, 15 years that you can't really move fast and break things in healthcare (laughs) or you have to break the right things. uh, But I mean, yeah, something like everything that happened with um, developing light-based skin sensors, photo plus, I can never say it right. Um, and, and discovering that, you know, those hadn't been tested in a variety of skin tones. And so they were like wildly more inaccurate, uh, uh, with people of color. Like that's the sort of thing that now we're sort of realizing you have to think about that during the development stage. You have to make sure that, you know, your product is, is not just safe and effective, but safe and effective for everybody. But I do think kind of that this idea that like, you know, everything digital health has lost its meaning because everything is digital in our in our society. I see that happening very similarly with AI now. Uh, now that it's crossed whatever line it crossed this year, it feels like we're going to start to see AI integrated in every part of our life and certainly every part of the healthcare value chain. And we might not always even know it's there. That's a very good point. And the interesting part is that a lot of data processing and data compute has already been or has been integrated in some capacity. Uh, large scale EHR improvements or recommendations use a component of AI algorithms. That uh, The question that I think you're alluding to is, how does level two, if we're in level one of having some rudimentary algorithms in the back end, I know Stanford has an 
AI integration into their, their workflows. How does level two look like? And maybe that's the component of the blurring of digital health and technologies from the digital health space of your personal wearables syncing up with your doctor visits. So your doctor has a better understanding of you as an individual. Because right now, how is care delivered? Care is delivered in, an, in a segmented manner where you come into the doctor, however frequently you do that. And then at the point of care or at the time you're doing blood, they'll have a snapshot of what you look like then. And then the next visit, they'll have another snapshot, depending on what you're getting treatment for. And then in between, we have no idea what goes wrong because unless you're sick, you don't go to the doctor. And so what does healthcare 2.0 look like? If healthcare 1.0 is you're sick, you come at different time points. We try to get an understanding of you as a person. But from every visit, you have a lot going on, right? You have sensor data. If you're wearing smartwatches, you have all the smartwatch data. You have maybe a continuous glucose monitor. Maybe you have the CGM going. Maybe you have something else going. How does all that get integrated into your health system record such that you can get more proactive care rather than reactive care? And that is a very interesting topic. Will it be solved in my lifetime? I have no idea. Everyone keeps talking about it. People keep working towards it. Perhaps having bit better data allows or better algorithms will allow for that. I don't know. Uh, the, the challenge is, you mentioned, uh, healthcare processes are super slow. They're like pharma giants. They're super slow to move on anything that is super cutting edge because it ties into the safety for the patients. And so how do you make sure that you're safe for patients where you're not going to disrupt the entire system super quick because you're not only opening yourself up to the liabilities, uh, the, the whole legal system, but also what if someone dies on your new test or your new invention, your new disruption. And so incremental change is usually the way in which healthcare is delivered. Then the question is, and because there are monopolies on things like EHR records, uh, groups like Epic have a long standing contracts with hospital systems to monitor your healthcare records and have integration of your, your essentially your persona. A lot of startups are trying to disrupt that space, but the challenge is as a hospital administrator, if I have a contract with you as uh, you being Epic for 10 years and I'm locked in, it's unlikely I'm going to be adding a new EHR management system because I already have one that I'm paying for for the next 10 years. And so then in that case, no matter how cool or fancy or nice the startup's EHR system is, you're going to be hitting a wall because people are like, well, sorry, we have contracts. We can't get out of them. We're kind of stuck, so we can't really do much. But thank you so much. You're great. Continue with the work that you're doing. Right. And that leads people to either try to work in integration with the existing systems, which is adds a whole lot of work and, and difficulty, or they, you know, they try to go outside of the system. You see, you know, these like little boutique concierge care places that are able to use all this technology, but they're, they're not, they're not really moving the needle on healthcare. Exactly. And so then the question is, if you really want to impact healthcare and move the needle on it, how do you do that? If it's not from the system and tools development from like an EHR system, or perhaps it's from the development of drugs that might not be currently developed that can fill an unmet need in the system and just treatment to making people's lives better. Or is it from the space of kind of new and emerging technologies like brain machine interfaces 
I know uh, a few friends of mine launched a startup that is trying to capture your tongue muscle movement in a way of regurgitating speech uh, and kind of having certain, just like your brain has certain signals that come out for certain words, your tongue usually it can be tricked. You can capture the muscle activity and it will also be corollary to certain words. And so can that system be used as a means to communicate and allow for someone who can't communicate to fully communicate? I just think building solutions that haven't been thought through is a very interesting space. Well, this has been an interesting conversation. It's certainly gone a lot of places, um, but I I think, you know, it's sort of just a marker of, of where we are right now at a real moment of um, kind of change and innovation at the intersection of technology and healthcare. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? If there are audience members listening that are very excited to build things, build, please continue building. Uh, make sure you're building with purpose in some capacity that have an identifiable product market fit and a final product that you're going to be developing. Um, always happy to connect with folks and really excited to um, to see this whole field evolve and both from a startup ecosystem space, but also from a technology space as things become cheaper and more affordable and compute becomes more accessible and what creativity will spark in the next era of healthcare 2.0. So that'd be really cool to kind of watch. And I think you and I both are on the same page in that kind of seeing what's going, what's the trends that are going to kind of uh, percolate to the top with all these technology enabling solutions. Great. Well, thank you so much, Artem. It's great to meet you. And uh, yeah, really appreciate the chance to talk some of this out. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening. Oh,